There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 130. Oh yeah. Here we go. Wow. Uh I picked this. <laughs> Oh, there go the jams. I picked this royalty-free music bed uh, because it sounds like a bad Prince knockoff band from 83, right? Like Jeremiah White dancing. Feet is where my dancing lives. Feet is where my dancing lives. Wow, wow, wow. Could have been a hit. Could have been a hit. <laughs> and the chimes. All right, I'm going to shut up about this ridiculous song. Uh, I would like to tell you the Nerdist Podcast, of course, is coming to New York October 14th. We're going to be doing two shows at the Gramercy Theater at 7.30 and then again at 10.30. Um, also, we're going to be in Portland at the Aladdin Theater on October 22nd. And then we're going to be in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts and Washington, D.C. in November. So get tickets for those at Nerdist.com. Also, the Nerdist Way book comes out soon, November 1st. You can pre-order that at Nerdistway.com. And The Talking Dead, The Walking Dead After Show, will be premiering October 16th, right after The Walking Dead. A perfect time to have a wrap-up show for The Walking Dead, I say. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by GoToMyPC. Alright, yes, the iPad is great, but functionality can't replace your office computer, unless you have the GoToMyPC app for the iPad. So GoToMyPC is the missing link to convert your iPad into your computer. You can access your entire home or office PC right from your iPad. Go to my PC for iPad gives you the best of both worlds. You get more freedom, you get more power. It sets up in minutes. There's no IT help required. Um, and now you can use your iPad to access all of your documents and apps uh, stored in your home office or computer anywhere you go. And you can try Go to My PC for free on the iPad. Download the free Go to My PC app in the App Store. Then visit gotomypc.com and click the Try It Free button. Then enter the promo code Nerdist. Thanks, Go to My PC. And now this episode, I listed it as Pen and Teller. Uh, it's actually Pen Gillette. But I, I thought it'd be funny because I don't know. It's he does. We wouldn't have talked anyway. <laughs> so I just said it was Penn and Teller, and it would have been the same show had Teller been there because he wouldn't have said anything. Um, but it was a real honor to. I actually met him the day before when they both did Attack of the Show, and they're both amazing. I I could have talked to to Penn on this podcast for another five hours, uh, but we didn't. Because we don't do five-hour-long podcasts. So I'm going to shut up now so you can uh, listen to this episode. But it was a tremendous honor, as certainly as one of my influences when I was growing up. Um, the Nerds Podcast number 130 with Penn Gillette. Now entering Nerdist.com.
Yeah, I guess it must yeah. be pivots. There's like a gasket right there. Yeah, I've never looked at it. I don't know. That's a firing mechanism. Uh, there's a there's a silencer. Yeah, no, we that's fine. That's, uh, that's is this next. is a Cold War era studio, so there are a lot of devices that uh, can murder you. We've already started recording. We can then. launch a Soyuz capsule from here, though. <laughs> Leica. Are those, are those guys getting down? Which guys? The, yeah. Soyuz? Yeah, they are. They, are? they, they haven't. They haven't escaped. Uh, they have. They can get out. Have you, have you all read the we book uh, Packing out. for Mars? Did yes. you read it? Yes. Boy, that makes you hate life, doesn't it? It does. It does. You know, there's another book too that that uh, Michael Collins wrote. The guy who was in, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. The, the guy who just drove around the parking lot while the other guys my went personal in. favorite astronaut. <laughs> when they got the awards, you know, yeah. when they got the awards, right. uh, they uh, I always thought it'd be great if you know if Neil. If Neil and Buzz went in and he just stayed in the parking lot, <laughs> circled. You just circled. But you know what I love about uh, what I love about uh, Collins is um, is that uh, he went away for training when they were when they were getting the training in the LEM yep. and all the training to go down on the uh, they didn't have the yeah the LEM yep. uh, they didn't have the rover but they had the LEM yep. uh, of course uh, when they went around to have their training on how they're doing all this mm-hmm. they took him off by himself. And what they were training him was to fly back alone. Oh, shit. Yeah. That was his, so, yeah. what did you do today, Mike? Uh, nothing. Ah, yeah. you know. You, know, know. Just, uh, you know, talked know. to me about stuff, you know. Yeah. You guys just, just keep uh, making yeah. chip shots over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm just able to get my ass home if you can't. I like If you can't do that. Michael Collins is such a, he's my favorite astronaut. He's just sure. so, he's sure. down to earth. Well, weirdly, astronauts down to earth. Um, have you met him? I've never met him personally, but I've I think just, you could date him. I would like you to. You probably could. He lives in the Cape. He lives in Cape Cod. I could go back. You know where he lives? I do. He Cape Cod in Florida. Okay, he, we just crossed a line there. That's right. It says it in the book. It says Matt, it about Matt, the Matt author. goes on to Google Maps and just stares at what's his house the, uh, on Street View. What's street View. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish the truck would go by more often. We get a picture of him. Maybe you come out and get his paper and his boxers. Matt's gonna. You're gonna try to bond with him. You know, Michael still needs to drive for you. What's his family how big a family uh he's got uh three kids and uh they must be adult children yeah they're adult children obviously he's adult children of astronauts (laughs) special support group special core what do they what do they do i don't know offhand i don't i'm not he doesn't follow them i'm a i'm a collector of song poems oh really what song poems are No. no idea song poems you can go to there's a lot of websites but i'm one of the big collectors along with uh uh one of the guys in devo and the guys Mm -hmm. in rmq um have you ever seen, and I'm sure this is all below all of you, but in uh, in uh, cheesy magazines like National Enquirer and sure. Midnight, there's uh, ads in the back, could you be a songwriter? Now, these are less prevalent now than they were like in the 60s or 70s. Mm-hmm. But it says, can you be a songwriter? Send a sample of your poetry. And if you send a sample of the poetry to them, you will get a letter back that says, yes, you're just who we're looking for to be a songwriter. <laughs> and we write music. So if you send us your poems, we will put it to music and record a demo and send it to Hollywood and you can make money. And this will oh only God. cost you $200. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, There's song- a documentary on this, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, off the charts, it's yeah. cool. The documentary is, is good, but uh, the, the actual stuff is deeper and richer and more important. So what you've got, these go back to Civil War days. But you say, Penn, yeah. Civil War days, there was no recording then. Pen. There were no recordings in Civil War days. Of course, of course, Ben. Of course, uh, <laughs> you made it your own, and that's what I liked. But they, um, but they put it. Uh, 
they would put it in books. It was publishing. It was vanity publishing. Mm-hmm. And then they started writing sheet music that would have your lyrics on it and then that. And then with recording, it goes full bug nutty. And a guy by the name of Tommy Ardolino, who was the drummer for what was the best live band in the 70s, 80s, not just my opinion, actual fact, uh, <laughs> uh, NRBQ. He was okay. the drummer for NRBQ. He's a big record collector, you know, vinyl. And in the um, in the seventies and eighties, he would go to record stores and find these um, uh, these discs that would say America's Hot Songwriters. And what they would do is these guys would record these songs, then they would press uh, ten or twenty of the records. And they would send the records to each one of the people that paid the two hundred bucks oh, to wow. say, "This is the record we're making of 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 your um, of your Holy song. Shit. We're sending this out to Hollywood." And then they would have occasionally records wouldn't would come back, and they would end up in a record store bargain bin. So Tommy Ardolino started collecting them, and so did Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo, mm-hmm. and oh, so wow. did I. And I have a collection of about two hundred of these records. If you go someplace and just look up song poems, you can find them, and they are. Stunning because they are most of them are about just God or Jesus. Sure. Totally uninteresting. (laughs) (laughs) And many of them many of them are about um are about love, which which have some some reality to them. Um, but they, um, but some of them are about subjects that somebody cared about and nobody else did. Now they send the poem to cynical musicians. Now the musicians would write these charts out and then bang out. Of course, now they're done by one person on a computer. Mm-hmm. So they're a little less interesting. They usually come with a video too. But in the 70s and oh, 80s, wow. when, when it still costs money to pr- press something and when you still had live musicians, there's a sweet spot where they would bring in uh, a band, I mean like 10 guys, and they would sight read, just read down a chart while these singers would sing these impossible lyrics. Oh, my God. These tunes they'd written. And they would write real charts. And, you know, you'd have, like, junky jazz musicians who would be in Boston, where a lot of this was done, or L.A., who needed a gig, you know, $40 a day to, you know, to, buy, their, you know, to buy their junk. Right. So they would do this. So you sometimes have guys that you go, that guy's like as good a trumpet player. So this is a perfect <laughs> ecosystem of sadness and on all. Yeah. Except what you get. There's some beauty, and there's some beauty that um, you know how you edit when you get an idea for something. You're starting to write something, and your first idea is pure, and then as soon as you start writing it down, you start fixing it, mm-hmm. and other people start fixing it. By the time you get to a song that's actually on the charts, you know, a Jay Z song or something, he's gone over those lyrics a zillion times, and so is the producer, and yeah. so is everyone else. And sometimes they hold on to the kernel, and sometimes they lose it. Mm-hmm. But these have this kind of raw passion. And I remember the first time I heard about them was a dishwasher that I worked with, an older fellow. By older, I mean younger than me, but I was a child. <laughs> um, he would talk to me about songs he'd written. He was, a, he, was a, he, was, he was an obese, bald man who was you know, borderline mentally competent and had a job as a dishwasher, but he saved up his money. And to give you an idea, it was like 200 bucks, but there were payment plans over a year. Oh, my God. It. 
and he would get his songs done. And I never heard his songs, but he's still in my heart. And I think about, uh, uh, you know, I have these, I guess I have about 150 albums. And they have this stuff on it. And this is all going to tie in. I'm going to follow the rules of conversation. Don't you worry. And there's one song that sticks in my heart that is called uh, Footprints on the Moon. Ah. And if I may, I'd like to sing a little bit for you. Please. Footprints, 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 footprints on the moon. The moon would like Neil Buzz and Mike to come again real soon. <laughs> footprints, footprints, and Neil Buzz and Mike. The moon would like Neil. Now, there is the problem, of course, that Neil, that Mike never walked on the moon. But, but when he's with you, it'll feel that way. He was just keeping the car running. Do you have, can you, would you send us that? We can put it at the end of the podcast. Are uh, we allowed to do that? You can, I believe, if you go to, there's we can a, just find a, it? a guy named Phil Milstein. Okay. If you do a search for Sil- Phil Milstein and Song Poems Archive, okay. you can wow. find Footprints on the Moon. You can also find a song called Jimmy Carter Says Yes. Um, <laughs> now, Jimmy Carter, there's a lot of stuff about presidents. Um, there's one that says, starts out, the lyrics are, God, in his infinite wisdom, put Richard Nixon on this earth. Sure. Wow. But also, uh, in terms of unintended irony, uh, Jimmy Carter says yes. Has the lyrics? Can the government be competent? Jimmy Carter says yes. <laughs> Jimmy Carter says yes. Can a government be decent and open? As the thirty-fourth president, he has spoken yes. Jimmy Carter says yes. Wow. Now, and then it has a burning trumpet solo. I mean, burning <laughs> trumpet. Like the guy who's playing is a monster. Oh, and it's this disco beat. And there's also um, a song called Disco Lady. That um, Disco Lady, I love your sexy moves. Disco Lady, I love your bouncing boobs. Disco Lady. And it goes on like that. And this stuff has... I agree with that entire song. I'm yeah. telling you, when you listen to this stuff... What goes away, you say sadness, but what goes away is cynicism. There's absolutely no cynicism. Even though the musicians don't care at all about the music, there's this purity that comes over. And I'm telling you, if you start listening to song poems, when you turn on the radio, when you turn on regular music, it'll sound so over-processed. You know, it'll it'll be like with song poems, you're eating like vegetables and in in regular songs you're eating like processed flour now that's interesting you bring up an interesting point and something that i'm constantly fascinated by because we weren't here to talk about songs. no no no. i want to talk about song poems we can talk about whatever you want i I want to talk about what you want to talk about but you bring up an interesting point which is because you've been i know um you started uh in the seven you know you started in the 70s so you've seen a few decades and so what i want to know is the I always refer to the eighties as the pre irony artistic era. Like sure. we didn't really get cynicism and irony in our in our creative endeavors until the nineties, I think, mid nineties. Mm-hmm. And uh, now it's all irony. So unless you ignore the ancient Greeks. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, in, in, in American culture. In, Jonathan Swift. Yes, no, no, no. I know all that. I beg to differ. I mean, in American Steve media. Steve Allen. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Ernie Kovacs. I know. There was irony invented before uh, before you, you little piss. I know, I know, I am. <laughs> but I mean, in a contemporary, in our, in our contemporary yeah. media culture. Yeah, pop da- culture. David Letterman um, is the one who starts saying, says nothing he means ever. But you but you guys too. Well, you know that is not true. That is simply not true. Really? There the word irony thanks to Alanis Morissette ruined it, ruined uh, it. 
has been it, it now sometimes means sad, it sometimes means wrong, and it sometimes means smart ass. But uh, I have found in our career that for the most part, if you go through anything I'm saying, I am really speaking as honestly and directly from my heart as possible, and I try to say that in an interesting way, and that sometimes gets uh, uh, gets seen as um, as irony or sarcasm. But my enemy, my enemy in the world is cynicism. Mm-hmm. I think there's very few things more evil and more unpleasant than cynicism. And it's remarkable how with all this cult of, and it all gets mushed together, sure. cynicism, sarcasm, irony, this whole cult of this, our whole culture of this, that you're not supposed to say what you mean, saying what you mean is really powerful. Right. <laughs> you know, it's really powerful to do that. And if you look at um, at our show, uh, Bullshit, you know, uh, very little of it is arch. Very little of it is with a wink. Yeah. Most of it ends up, if you take out the obscenity and you take out the nudity, it is almost to the point of cloyingly earnest. I mean, I would look at the scripts and go, yeah. can we really get away with ending the show again with be kind to each other, be honest and love each other? Can we really do that again? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, I guess we'll put in many, much more obscenity, and we'll bring someone in naked at the end, and no one will notice that what we're essentially saying is, shouldn't people tell the truth? (laughs) But, um, you know, the whole idea that our culture, and, you know, Bill Maher will proudly call himself a cynic. He will will push for that. And it always makes me uh, a little sad, and it is true that, song poems start getting a little bit known. They're certainly not popular. They start getting a little bit known at the end of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Some of the compilations come out. and plays very strongly into your point because uh, it's something that the hipsters try to see as removed, but they they get choked by it because if you try to listen to this, and I mean, you, you'll go to the website. You'll Absolutely. find it. And as you try to listen to this stuff, your first feeling is you have all the tools. You know how to make fun of this. You know how to laugh this off. You know how to make your comments that would be appropriate for your culture. And then you listen to like five of them. And you, at least for me, you say to yourself, I like the person who wrote these lyrics more than I like myself. <laughs> because they have a direct connection to something they care about. Yeah. And they're genuine Just about it. Just the fact that somebody can love Richard Nixon. That simply (laughs) is easily laughable, but also has a beauty underneath it. And I have this, there's a great picture, you'll find it on the Song Poems website, of Jimmy Carter listening to Jimmy Carter says yes. (laughs) That must have blown that fucking person's mind (laughs) out of the water. And you you can't find these people. No. The people that wrote the song, there's, a, there's several compilations, and just buy them, you know, it's 20 bucks, whatever. Several compil, and most of the compilations are from my collection. Yeah. The people pulled the stuff out. Um, and it says on the record, you know, if you wrote this song, get in touch with us and we'll pay you the royalties, you know, because you don't know who wrote it. And there's stuff by a guy named Gygax. Oh, that, yeah. Who, but different Gygax. Gygax is the guy you're thinking of, is the D&D inventor. guy, Gary Gygax, yeah. But. As far as I know, not related okay. to him. Uh, this guy named Gygax, who was in an institution, who wrote stuff that even grammatically is insane and unable to be remembered. And the metaf- metaphors and the um, 
and the similes that are used uh, are this heartfelt stuff that would never get by any editor. And I don't know, when you watch Plan 9 from Outer Space, mm-hmm. when you watch Ed Wood, there are some people that just watch it, this is the worst movie ever. And those people are fine. Great. Terrific. It's the worst movie ever. Who cares? I guess they never saw Manhattan by Woody Allen. <laughs> but anyway, it's the worst movie ever. Um, but then there's another way to watch uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is listening to that pre-edit dialogue. That first speech is exactly the way stuff comes out before you fix it for somebody else. You know, before you lay something out, it's just it just has this kind of purity. And I find Plan Nine from Outer Space to have a kind of honesty that just often gets trampled with slickness. You know, it's not competently done. But if I have a choice of seeing a glimpse of someone's heart, even an untalented person, I take that over something that's just designed in order to sell. You know, that slick and that Yeah, I was always fascinated by Brian um, Wilson's uh, uh, My Favorite Vegetable song. I'm like, wow, he really just loves those vegetables. Well, Brian Wilson is a really good example of the two sides of that in one person. I mean, he is uh, incredibly uh, talented orchestrator and Mm -hmm. tune writer. And then uh, incredibly simple, and either from from acid damage or right. it, it could be his father hitting him in the head, brain damage. Sure. We don't really know, right. but there, there there is something that's not operating on all cylinders. Uh, so you get that you get the very it's exactly the right example to use a very combination of very sophisticated. Um, you know, if you listen to good vibrations, mm-hmm. some of the most sophisticated pop music ever done at that time. So incredible. Coupled with lyrics, I love the colorful clothes she wears. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what he's choosing. Ah, love the color. He's got this beautiful um, melodic line. Mm-hmm. He's got the, the fake theremin playing. He's got this kind of... Kind of uh, orchestra of power behind it. And harmonies that are mind-blowing. And then he's singing... I think the colorful clothes she wears and the way the sunlight sparkles in her hair. I mean, it's really, that is a 12-year-old girl. Ooh, shiny. Writing, writing poetry. Between yeah. them and the free design, who also just wrote about, who I could never figure out if they were the most sarcastic band in the world or the least sarcastic band. Are you familiar with free design? Yeah. So, you know, like the song Kites Are Fun is yeah. literally just about how they think kites well, are fun. And we really see that. I mean, if you're going to do your whole cultural bullshit thing here about <laughs> irony, you have to bring in OK Go. Yes. Because you know? OK Go, the mission statement of that band is no irony. Mm-hmm. And you can talk to Damien about this for hours, and he will tell you, we will not do anything we see as ironic, which is why that dance video um, and the treadmill video, went, I believe, went so crazy, is the idea of somebody doing a video of their song that isn't smirking. You know, it's constantly smirking. They just kind of do that. They just kind of stand there. Mm-hmm. And there's such, a, there's, such a, there's such a human beauty in that that it's just great. And I think that um, I like to think that we're moving away from that everything has to be smirked now. Right. And OK Go are uh, we're really the pioneers of that. They're great. They've been on the podcast, and they yeah. really do um, – and also just watching the community of people that get behind them to help them make these. Yeah. These really, they're not just videos. They're like the art installations. Well, what, they, what, they, yeah. what they've done is they've taken, I mean, they've taken the power away from the editors 
and given it back to the performers. Right. What you do with MTV uh, and old MTV in the eighties is you take, there's no performance whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They come in, a stylist puts them in clothes, they jump around for two hours, then an editor puts it together, like the reality shows. Mm -hmm. You know, no one puts, you you shoot people for a long time. It's all post-production. Then the editors put it all together. But they, with their one shot, there's exceptions, but pretty much their one shot, they actually perform, like a vaudeville group. Mm -hmm. They learn the song, they do the song in front of the audience, and it gives the power back to the artist. I mean, we we got real, real excited about editing because editing got so cheap. Yeah. And now yeah. everybody can edit anything on their computer. And now, you know, everybody can do it. So now editing's a little less cool and maybe we can start doing... I mean, one of the things we talked about when we were doing... Um, uh, our our, new, our discovery show, mm-hmm. uh, Pen and Teller Tell a Lie. When we started doing that. One of the things I wanted to do, even though uh, it's just a science show, with you know with jokes and you know the big gag of being able to tell what's fake, is we pushed really hard. Can we do this live? And it was just this insane. Why would you want to do this show live? What's important about it being live? And I said, just so people feel like we're there and talking to them and that segment three has something to do with segment one, Mm -hmm. like we're in the room. And can we do uh, a single take on things and just move on? I don't want it to be cut all over the place. Can we just talk to people? The magic gets lost, too, when people, because everyone just assumes, like, well, everything's going to get cut up. And so when you can do things live or if you actually hear a band perform live and they sound amazing, it's a whole other level of respect. He's like, oh, actually, they actually have skill that involves just sure. their art. And they, they don't need another guy. Yeah. And also, when, uh, when, when people talk, I mean, just hearing people talk about stuff they feel in their heart is very, very compelling. You don't need, you know, to, to turn the whole shot around and do cuts all over the place. If you've actually got content, people really react to that. And I think that uh, people that don't have anything to say insult their audience by going, we'll just keep things moving and they won't notice. You're not working for canaries. You're right. working for people. Now, what do you think has happened with us culturally where, because I feel like, I mean, you know, on our show, I we tend to be, I mean, I try to tend to be positive about things because I feel like, hey, not everything is bleak. There's good things in the world. You don't have to shit on everything all the time. And yet I feel like sometimes it's not taken as seriously because people tend to take you know, people who are more negative, seriously. Like, well, that guy's saying something real. I'm like, no, it's no more or less real than what I'm saying. He's just angry and negative, and I'm not. Well, there's two things that have always been true throughout uh, recorded history. One is the world is always getting better, Mm -hmm. and two is people always think it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. There are exceptions to that, you know, during wartime where things will take a dip. But in the big picture, in 50-year chunks, there is less violence going on today in the world than at any other time in history. Even with Obama having five, count them, five wars going on in our name. Even with that appalling thing. Even with people on death row in our country. Even with the horrors that we're doing that are being done in our name that are inexcusable and unforgivable. Overall, the world is better. There are fewer people starving in the world today than there were 100 years ago. And I don't mean that percentage-wise. Fewer people. You know, because, wow. because of the Green Revolution in the 60s, mostly Norman Borlaug, things really are getting better. So not only are, are, are you right from a kind of artistic moral point of view, but you're also right from a scientific point of view. I mean, yes, there are poor people 
in our country. There are people that are hungry in our country, but many fewer than there were 100 years ago. And we keep raising, and we should, I'm not saying this is wrong, we keep raising what we call poverty. Mm -hmm. Now, what we call poverty in the U.S. today, 300 years ago, would have been royalty. Of course. But that, I mean, I'm not saying that that makes it okay. Yeah. I'm just saying we should keep in mind things are getting it's funny good. you say that. I was just walking by a shitty apartment building the other day, and I kind of in my head was shitting on it. Like, why would they build that piece of shit? And then I actually had the thought, it's still an achievement that we have <laughs> <laughs> buildings with indoor plumbing. And just the fact that we get so satisfied so quickly with like, well, this is the status quo. And in relation to other stuff, that thing's a piece well, of shit. But you you're know, right, 200 you know, years ago. Louis C.K. In, in his famous bit. Covered all that so beautifully by the guy complaining about on the plane. On the yeah. on the plane. Yeah. Five years ago, Louis, you couldn't even yeah. fucking. <laughs> Louis C.K. now owns that idea. Yeah. It was so important that idea was it. All I would say to you about your shitty apartment building is could you build one? No, yeah. absolutely yeah, we, not. We're going to drop you right now in the middle of Montana. <laughs> Here's some wood. I Here's could build wood. one. I can't promise you'd live in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to be a lean-to on itself. Listen. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's, it'll look yeah. more like a fort. Yeah. Rent's affordable, though. Come on, guys. Yeah, yeah, come on. A lot of that stuff is perspective. Though. I remember um, like my first place that I got on my own was this shitty, dilapidated house and uh, like underneath a freeway overpass where I had to take a shower in a separate little shack in the backyard. Oh, cool. and, and I remember just being like, it's like, this is pretty fucking awesome. I'm paying $150 and this is fucking it. Yeah, it's I fucking, yeah. yeah, I fucking did it. I did it. And then like the next time I got it, I, it wasn't still. What he means is he got blown in that apartment. <laughs> <laughs> That's all that story. That's all that story I meant. Did it. That's nice all work, that buddy. story meant. Yeah. And it cost him only twice his rent for that. That was it. That's all it was. And then it sent her outside yeah. to the shower shack yeah. and uh, then sent her They don't care way. where they have to do it. They don't as care. long as you give them the money. Tin roof rusted. <laughs> <laughs> Jonah's love shack. Yeah. Uh, Holes in the floors. What was uh, uh, Asparagus Valley Cultural Society? Asparagus Valley Cultural Society was just Penn and Teller with a third person. Okay. Uh, when we first started out, we had a third member of the group who was a classical musician. And we did uh, kind of what Teller and I do. Although the third member of our uh, Asparagus Valley was a Lutheran. Okay. So uh, the skeptical elements and the atheist elements of our of our show were uh, were not there mm -hmm. uh, when we finally split up, which was very early on. We uh, we ended up um, we ended up having more of the skeptical elements in there. But it was a very similar show. We ran in San Francisco for three years. I was you know in my early twenties, and uh, we uh, we. Uh, we did the show there, and it was it was a lot of fun. You know, it was it was nutty to have a show uh, that I believe to be unbelievable, like 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 your shack, <laughs> unbelievably successful. You know, mm -hmm. I could not believe I was making money doing exactly what I wanted to do. You know, my dad my dad was a jail guard. You know, um, so the idea that you could make money doing something that wasn't repulsive was still a brand new idea to me. Did that fuck with your head a little bit? Yeah, a lot. You know, to, to, to make, uh, you know, my dad worked so hard to support his family. He, he later retired and became numismatist, mm -hmm. coin dealer, <laughs> and... Um, and did much better. It's the Nerdist podcast. We get that. The, <laughs> I had a coin collection. But the idea that um, 
that you could, uh, and, and many people are facing this, that you not only can earn a living, but you can also earn a living doing something that you find uh, fulfilling and satisfying, which I don't think there are many people who would say that uh, being a jail guard is anything but a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, I, I imagine there's somebody somewhere that, that looks forward to going to work as a jail guard, but I'm not sure I want to know that. We person. had a jail guard mm-hmm. who worked with us at the funeral home, and he desperately wanted to get to the funeral home. <laughs> really? <laughs> yep. What did you do at the funeral home? I was a funeral assistant, so I did pretty much everything. So you dealt with the uh, with the, the cadavers? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everything. I, I, was, I was in dietary at the uh, hospital, which meant I was a dishwasher. <laughs> uh, it was called dietary aid when I was in high school. So it was the only place would hire me with long hair. Yeah. So I had to wear a hairnet. And we had to clean out all the pots and pans sure. and clean out all the dishwashers. And we also had to go in and clean out the autopsy room. <laughs> oh, and, wow. And you would pull the sink drain. Oh. You know, and there would be giblets in there. Yeah. People giblets. And you'd kind of, you know, knock it into the trash and then give it the wash with your pan dandy and put it back in. And the people giblets, that concept. What's funny to me is like every time, if I, if I happen to walk, if I'm in a hospital and I happen to walk by a morgue now, the smell. You get so I, hard. Well, I just kind of. <laughs> I just miss, I miss the old days when I walk by a morgue. Is that true? Yeah. Isn't yeah, that weird? Well, that's that, you know, that's that, uh, that's your Madeleine. That's yeah. your that's, uh, yeah, remembrance my, of things my, my dad was a professional bowler, and so I grew up in a bowling center, and so when I smell like lane oil, I get sleepy. <laughs> For real. <laughs> I get sleepy because it feels wow. very comforting this to is, me. This is the greatest collection. Yeah. Of, uh, <laughs> your, your, your dad was what? My dad was one one of the greatest professional bowlers in the history of bowling. Is that true? Yeah, yeah he's in the Hall of Fames. He was the first to do a lot of stuff. Like he he was he was amazing. Was first, he on TV? Oh yeah, first I was athlete in a beer commercial if I'm Yeah, not yeah, yeah. I was named after Chris Schenkel who was the the announcer and who was very close to my mom and my dad. And so I grew up on the Pro Bowlers tour with like Dick Weber and Earl Anthony and my dad, whose name was Billy Hardwick, and like I we that was our Wait life. Wait a minute, Billy Hardwick is like a name that even kind of trickled down into my mind. Is that That's possible? my dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He was on TV in the '60s, like he sort of ruled. And when there was when there was pressure, he could throw that big ball straight down the lane where he wanted it. Yeah, with the TV cameras on him and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd yeah. bowl like perfect strike every time. He bowled back to back three hundreds in Japan in front of like the emperor's nephew. There's all these really the emperor's great- nephew was there. Oh the my emperor's God. nephew <laughs> who was wearing no clothes that were amazing. <laughs> um, but he, uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he is. And did he take? Did he take his little son on tour? Yeah, I was on. Did uh, you have siblings? I didn't have siblings. Um, he retired when o- I was fairly only young. Only bowling child. I was the only bowling child. <laughs> Just Chris and the ball. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's me and the ball. Let's go. But it's funny because my dad is is sort of a modern bowling skeptic in this, and I ended up writing an article for Wired about it where he said bowling's too easy now. Technology is hot. Has made the sport. Oh, that was me. I forgot that you have those. Okay. And I have these. Oh, you hit the yeah. technology's made the sport really simple. So I did some investigating and found out that yes, the PBA actually conducted a survey. And they they built a robot and they that threw thousands and thousands of balls and they discovered that uh, that technology has made the sport really way too easy. How, how what 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 technology? Just the lanes being even? Well, the lanes. First of all, the lanes aren't wood anymore. Oh, the I'm lanes so are excited. The lanes. We're talking about something I care about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Do you really? Yes. Okay. Uh, what did you think was going to happen? I thought we were going to talk about like pushing the show and the book and shit. No. We, uh, we will talk about that stuff. No, no, I'm serious. Okay, so the so lanes are no longer made of wood. They're basically just a synthetic material with a with a uh, a laser image. So pictures of wood. So pictures of wood, wood grain, uh, because it's easier to maintain. Sure. Um, the bowling balls, the cover stock. When my dad was bowling, they were just rubber balls. And the cover stock now has – it's this composite material that has bits of glass in it, mm-hmm. like this reactive resin. Yeah. And so what happens – the reason balls hook into the pocket so hard now is because the glass grabs the lane and whips the ball into the pocket and reacts off the pins. And so they had to set up these rules that said that the, the, the glass particles in the cover stock has to be a certain distance apart from one another so that the game isn't – you know. Because the game used to be all about spares and and right. uh, and, and now well, it's this, all strikes. I do not like games. I do not like sports. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a whole sporting event all the way through. Yeah, me neither. I don't like games. And one of the reasons I don't like games and sports is that the goals are so arbitrary. Mm-hmm. If you want those pins knocked down, walk down there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love competition in the real world. We want to cure AIDS. Now, there's a goal. That's a goal. But, you know, the, the, within the game, I, I've always had trouble with that. But I love the fact that technology has uh, – has, so people who bowl 300s now are nothing compared to your dad. No, Well, no, because in, in, in the – I mean, they might be, but sure. but the odds are, you know, my dad's – I think my, when my dad was bowler of the year in 68, I think his high – the tour average – his high average was like 212. And now people are averaging 250, 260. And they can't really make spares because it's just all about strikes. Don't they have a counterweight in them now? Like you can have a weight in the ball... Like the core isn't necessarily well. They always in the had middle. they always had some type of you could counterweight stuff. There are ways to drill oh, okay. and drop weights into the ball. I mean, listen, I'm, I don't want to make no, this about bowling. Well, we made sorry. it about bowling. I know, and I'm, I'm fine with that. I just get <laughs> excited about it because I never get to talk about it. I so. have one. I have one bowling story. What is it? I have a friend who works with us. He, he works on our crew. We've been friends since we were um, uh, children. You know, right out of high school. And uh, we were working at a Great Adventure Amusement Park mm-hmm. in New Jersey. <laughs> What's uh, big and purple has lots of rides. Great, Great adventure. adventure. And, um, <laughs> and I was a juggler, and he was uh, a fencer, right? Okay. And if it rained, the characters out on the street couldn't, couldn't go. So we would, we would sometimes go bowling. And he took bowling very seriously, and I took bowling very not seriously. And he was... For the first time in his life, he's a real jockey guy. He was bowling a three hundred. He was bowling his probably the only perfect game of his life. Mm-hmm. He was right near the end of it. Now, I'm not sure. I may have morphed this story over the years for being his final frame. It may have been the penultimate or the antepenultimate, but it was toward the end of all strikes, mm-hmm. all X's on that thing, and he was bowling. Now we were we were. Uh, uh, Assholes. And so um, <laughs> I already see where this is going, and I already feel the pain. But the, the pain gets more interesting in a way that you you might not expect. Oh, um, he starts to bowl his you know ultimate penultimate or sure. antipenultimate frame, and he is focused and concentrated. He's in the zone. He's going to get the one perfect game of his life. This is amazing. <laughs> and as he brings the ball back and runs up, I go. And I yell, you motherfucker. Oh, gosh. And it slides off and hits one pin. So it's not even a gutter ball, it's one pin. Oh, my stomach. And there are people who've been watching him because it's this perfect game. There's probably 
a uh, huge crowd for bowling alley, which uh, is what fifteen people, right? right. <laughs> if that, you know, in an afternoon, rainy afternoon bowling, and they're all watching. And he is an athletic guy, and I'm a big guy, so they're ready for excitement. <laughs> and he looks over at me, and I look at him, and we make eye contact. We're very good friends. And he walks over to me, and he stands in front of me. And as he walks over me and stands in front of me, I do something that everybody in the room thinks is odd, except for my friend. I put my hands behind my back, and I just hold my wrist behind my back, and I just stand there. Mm -hmm. And he reaches down, and I'm wearing shorts at the time, and he grabs me by my balls. (laughs) And he squeezes my balls and then takes his fist and hits me as hard as he can right in the solar plexus. He just goes, boom! And I go, with my hands behind my back, I go completely unconscious. Oh, my God. You know, because I've just been, had my balls grabbed and been punched right in the stomach. So I go completely unconscious, and I crumble in his hands as he holds my balls. (laughs) And I go completely out. (laughs) And I don't know how long I'm out. They told me I was out not long. Five seconds, six seconds, ten seconds. I'm crumbled on the floor. I get up. I go, "Ah." he goes, "Ah." and we go back over, have a snack. And he he has worked with me since the 70s. He is in my employ. He is on my crew, and we have never talked about it. <laughs> wow, We've never God. said a word about it. I've never said I'm sorry. I never said, well, <laughs> did you feel like we came out even? It was just this, It was just probably the definition of what it's like uh, to love an asshole. Uh, yeah. You know, he knows he's an asshole. He's not going to fight me. He's not going to defend himself. I have to decide what I feel this moment was worth. Was it worth it? For me? <laughs> Yeah. Oh fuck yeah. <laughs> Come on. Now you can't tell me that that and 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 you aren't, but I think anyone else would have to agree that moment made your friendship stronger. Then, <laughs> then if he had bowled the perfect game, which you wouldn't have given a shit about. That's the idea of squeezing all. the balls yeah, that's a weird and move. punching in that's, the stuff. That's like how black holes form. They must, like that must have yourself. looked like a choreographed your hands go behind your back, yeah. his hands come out and, and hit, at you that go down and Penn knew what was about to happen <laughs> as he well, reached never, his hands uh, behind his back. I've never hit anyone in my life in anger. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pacifist sure. to the world. So there was no, no chance in, that there was going to be a fight. Mm-hmm. He knew that about me. So he knew that he would decide how much he was going to hurt me <laughs> and that I had already done the damage I was going to do. That there, whatever he did. I mean, imagine that situation. Whatever you do to someone, there will be no retaliation. So the morality of this story is only on him. I mean, he could have punched me in the face and broken my nose. Sure. Right? He could have picked up a ball and thrown it into my head and come close to killing me. But his idea was... What did this feel like to me to see that <laughs> Just you know, the physical manifestation yeah. of what he was feeling emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. I like yeah. the combo, too. I like the idea that he was like, like he's walking up to you, he's like, just a punch in the stomach? No. Better just a tug balls. on the balls? No. But I really How love, I really love Penn's, I really love Penn's reaction where it's just, <laughs> 
Hey! All right, I see all the paperwork is in order. <laughs> like he knew that there was going yeah. to be an emotional cost. There was going to be a cost. Yeah. There was going to be a yeah, payment yeah. to be made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all that, all that, all, all everything's the, been signed. All he was really willing to pay for that. We're now going to. Uh, I'll now I'll get whatever. And I didn't know what it was going to be. You know, I I didn't know. I think if you'd asked me right then in that frozen moment, I would probably have said, "I'm going to get punched in the face really hard." Right. Yeah. You know, what I mean, I'm going to get punched in the face harder than I've ever been punched. And uh, it ended up that wasn't his choice. I got to respect that because if you were truly an asshole, what would have <laughs> happened is you would have done that and then run away. Run, run yeah. away. The fact is you did it. You knew there was going to be and you wanted there but, to be a balanced and fair trade. But to not to not toot my own horn too much. He would have found me. <laughs> there was no place I was going to be able to. I mean, we cut to eight years later in Mongolia yeah. where I'm living in a hut. And he walks like, in. I knew this day would come. I've been waiting for this day. Old friend. He's living in that apartment building I like, built like, in Montana. Like fucking uh, Raza Ghoul. Yeah. <laughs> all the farm animals run away. Yeah. And, my, and my new bride yeah, goes over. No, no. Birds start falling from the sky. Takes the baby. This Daddy, who is that? This is an American thing. <laughs> you could not understand it. It has to do with bowling. <laughs> There's a record scratch, but no record player. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, when you, I, I watched, uh, I watched your revision three show. Uh-huh. And you told this the the chimp and the little person story <laughs> as a reaction to. It was because of Adam Savage, but I, I'm, I'm the one who told Adam Savage on this very podcast, and then that's why he reached oh, out to you, oh, yes, and yes, I yes. was so excited, I couldn't even tell you, to hear the story from your <laughs> mouth about the relationship of chimpanzees and little circus. people. I thought you were circus. I'm so yeah. sorry. No, no, that's what they said to no, me. No, that's what they said to you. Yeah. I thought you were circus, yeah, because you, you thought you knew. I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> it, it was an astonishing thing, and I've talked to, um, to people who were circus, but the strange thing is everyone in circus knows this, but primate people don't. I guess they don't have a lot of little people around. Right. So they don't notice. But circus, the circus people have both. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah both. <laughs> and it was uh, – and I saw – I thought of this story when I saw um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes mm-hmm. because uh, when they do the, the, the computer – Cartoon mm-hmm. of uh, of the uh, of the monkey, and I, I know it's a chimpanzee. I prefer the word monkey. Yeah, yeah. they they are very uh, offended by the when they you're called a monkey. Right, but they're monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that thing. And uh, the first time that I was there, and the um, I, I'll just tell very briefly what happened. I, I I have parties at my house, and some of the parties are covered in the book, like when I had a very fat, naked Elvis urinating on people while singing Love Me Tender. Was that the fat Elvis that performs at the Barbary Coast? Uh, no. Okay. This is, uh, <laughs> this is a guy called Extreme Elvis. <laughs> oh, Extreme Elvis. You know Extreme yeah, Elvis. I know Extreme yeah. Elvis. And it's like Gigi Allen and Elvis put together. Yeah. Oh, nice. A uh, performance artist, but uh, he can't get booked anywhere. He gets arrested. So, you know, he can only play private parties, and what asshole would have him at a private party? <laughs> that asshole. And he, he came out, and he was, you know, urinating on my guests while singing Love Me Tender, <laughs> and then we had an atheist baptism. It was a beautiful... And remember, uh, all of this, and this is all that makes it good, is all done stone cold sober. Sure. Uh, I've never had a drink of alcohol in my life, never any recreational drug. So when I have a wild party with a piss and Elvis, it's all sober people. Um, but another party I had was going to be uh, uh, my my uh, girlfriend at the time uh, really thought that chimps were very very cute, 
So I had a friend who had a chimp. And I was going to have uh, a chimp over and then a lot of friends over for kind of a swimming barbecue party. And my friend Arturo, who was a, a little person, um, not particularly small, but certainly under probably about three and a half feet. Mm-hmm. Wait, Arturo, what's his last name? Uh, Figueroa. Oh, yeah, I've worked with that guy. Okay. Yeah, solve the mole man. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arturo, wonderful man. Yeah, wonderful he's, he's man. great. He's an awesome guy. Uh, originally Mexican. And, uh, <laughs> well, yes, he was really, that's part of the story. So uh, I'm going to have this party. I hadn't seen Arturo in a while. He comes to our show, and afterwards he says, uh, I said, hey, Arturo, we're having a party at my house uh, tomorrow. You, you want to come by? Oh, yeah, man, I love to, man. Great. Okay, good. He'd come by. And then after he leaves, my friend Michael Goudeau, who is my co-host on the radio show and also the writer, writer on um, on uh, Penn and Teller Tell a Lie, Goudeau says, did you just invite a little person and a monkey to the same party? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, uh, I thought you were circus, man. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, didn't you work circus? I said, yeah. He goes, you can't put a little person anywhere near a chimpanzee. They rip them apart. It's a dominance thing. I said, oh, uh, what do I do? He said, well, you, you call them. I said, call who? He said, call either the monkey or Arturo. You know, one of them can't come to the party. And I go, oh, I'll call Arturo. <laughs> <laughs> so I call Arturo. And I have one of the most uncomfortable conversations of my life because I go, hey, Arturo, hey, man, what's up? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm talking about the party tomorrow. Oh, yeah, man, I'm looking forward to it, man. Can I bring, you know, my, uh, my cousins in town? Can she come by with me? Yeah. Uh, one problem. Uh, we, we have uh, some people uh, coming to Yeah, man, what's up? Well, there might be a problem. Hey, I got no problems with anybody, man. Talk to anybody. You know, most little people, you know, they're assholes. They can be fucking assholes. But uh, I'm cool with everybody, man. I get along with everybody. Talk to anybody, man. I'm cool. I said, I, I know you're cool, Arturo, and I love you. Um, we're bringing a, an animal trainer to this. Oh, great, man. You know, when I worked in the Ringling Show, man, I worked with elephants. I worked with cats, man. What does he work with? Uh, not elephants and not cats. What, what does he work with, man? Um... He, he, he has a uh, <laughs> has a uh, uh, <clears throat> a chimpanzee. What the fuck is wrong with you, man? <laughs> he will rip me apart. He will rip me apart. He will kill me. He will. The, the, I can't be around them. They will kill me. Yeah, I know. What are you saying, man? I'm saying we're gonna have to be really careful when you come to the party. <laughs> <laughs> and then act three of the sitcom when we return from yeah. the yeah. So um, Godot is there, and Arturo is there, and the monkey has not arrived. And Michael Godot, who's a practical man, a science man, says to me, we are going to put a chimpanzee and a little person in close proximity. And he said, we don't really know what's going to happen, but it's not going to be good. We need to take kitchen knives and if it gets out of hand you have to look me in the eye and tell me you are willing to stab a chimpanzee to death to save a human being oh my god i said he said we're getting the five biggest guys we're going to stand there and we will be holding knives and if we cannot subdue the chimpanzee in any other way we will need to kill it and i go Okay. <laughs> it's a party, isn't it? And Arturo it? goes, Arturo says, uh, we're going to leave your pool open. I'm taking my phone and my wallet out of my pocket. 
monkeys hate water more than they hate little people. So if something goes bad, I will run as fast as I can and jump in the pool and try to stop the monkey from coming in after. Oh, my God. I go, oh, okay, okay. Rather than just not come to the party. Yeah. <laughs> party. It's a party at Pendulette's. <laughs> I know, I know. Something had gone very wrong in our social structure. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You know, it's kind of mass insanity. We had decided I feel like it might have been you. Coming. You yeah. went wrong. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I think that's the truth I have to face. Yeah. You're thinking you call the animal trainer sure. and say you can't come. That's what yeah, I mean. yeah. You know. That's, I understand that you didn't. But yeah. wait, Matt. No. Chimp at a party. Yeah, it's pretty cool. This is the chimp that changes his own diapers. Seriously. You say to him, get me a Diet Coke, and he goes in to get you a Diet Coke and not a Coke. Oh. The only thing he can't do is not kill a little person. No, no, never yeah. mind. That's the only command you won't follow. The thing don't, is, I, don't I have a lot of those similar traits. Yeah. <laughs> now, you have a problem here. Uh we have a lot of problems. Yeah, of course. But one of the problems is that people don't seem to understand that certain things are innate. And I'm not going to get into any argument about sexism because I don't sure. have an argument there. But the chimpanzee will also feel up women. Mm-hmm. They will try to finger women. Mm-hmm. And if a woman tells them what to do, they also react very negatively. The person that can tell them what to do is the biggest person in the room. To the chimpanzee, I am a silverback. And when I would say, stop that, he would stop immediately. Wow. If a woman said stop that, he would go. Wow. And they also, it's great. If you have a chance of being a chimp, take it. Because (laughs) really attractive women at the party, the monkey would just reach down the shirt and just grab her tit. They think it's adorable. Oh, isn't that funny? (laughs) And if they grab the hand, try to stop him, then he gets mad. It's terrific. It's like a soccer team. Wow. um, (laughs) Like a soccer team. Like a a Princeton soccer team. (laughs) And um, and so... (laughs) We have Arturo, and the way my courtyard is set up, Arturo is there, and Arturo has got people around him, and we just kind of want the monkey to see Arturo, right? And we have knives in our hands, (laughs) and it's like this kind of Lord of the Flies thing. We have taken a solemn oath that we will stab a chimp, and for someone who is as pacifistic as me, this is horrible, but to save a little person. Ethical, ethical debates. Ethical debates. Certainly, if you had what's his name of uh, from PETA and the uh, oh, right. silver, what's his name? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, I like the idea that there would be people at the party going, "Hey, those guys are taking the the little person's side. I think we have to band together <laughs> to murder and this then all chip. of a sudden, there's two the, two factions at the party, two gangs. It could happen almost. We need to get knives too. <laughs> <laughs> so my girlfriend at the time, uh, uh, an attractive uh, actor from L.A is holding the chimp like it's her child. It's wearing a little diaper. She's having it. She's kind of sweet-talking the chimp. And the trainer is right there. And the trainer is bonded to the chimp. And my girlfriend is bonded and is holding. And it's cuddly and it's sweet and it's great. And now what happens here is that there's a dominance issue. That the reason the chimpanzee doesn't kill everybody, because they have more strength than someone my size, Mm -hmm. even at 80 pounds, is because there's a dominance thing, and they're smaller and aren't going to be able to vibe and this kind of stuff. I'm talking about shit I don't really understand, but I mean, in a a very broad strokes, that's what's happening. Of course, what's happening in those pods is really much more complicated, and as complicated as what happens in our social structures. But that having been said, uh, he's afraid of us because we're big. 
And um, <laughs> so uh, holding the monkey, it, it, she's standing there, and there's this tension in the room. And Arturo comes around the corner, okay? And he kind of, he's never been in this kind of situation because in circus they keep him separate. Right there, kind of comes around the corner, and that monkey does that, you know, exorcist, rise of the planet of the apes thing. And my girlfriend, who has her arms around the monkey ape and is supporting him, he just goes, whoo, and her, all her strength is nothing to him. Wow. And the trainer reaches, and he's just gone, and he's on the ground, and Arturo goes, whipping <laughs> around the corner into the house, slams the door, and now they're looking at each other through the glass. Oh, God. And it's going. Uh, <laughs> well, what if it just grabbed his balls and punched a solar plexus? It would have been fine. It would have torn off the balls. <laughs> and so then uh, we're all holding our knives and flop sweating, and, and it's over. <laughs> and Arturo was safe. And, and Arturo just walks away from the window. And the monkey can't see him anymore. And the monkey goes, and jumps up into my girlfriend's arms. <laughs> and he's all back to lovey-dovey, let me tweak your nipples a little bit. Wow. Holy crap. And then for the rest of the party, we did this thing with our cell phones. Where uh, when Arturo was in the band room, and the monkey wanted to go into the band room, because we thought it'd be funny to get pictures of the monkey playing the drums. <laughs> Hanging on the bongos like a chimpanzee. <laughs> you want that picture, don't you? And of course, I, I should say that. Well, I that ain't also, working. <laughs> no, that's the way they do it. Yeah. Uh, I also should add into this, and maybe a lot of people hate me for this, but also we gave the monkey a lot of cigarettes because <laughs> there's there's nothing funnier than a smoking monkey. Like an, you, uh, <laughs> like Krusty's monkey in yeah. The Simpsons. Yeah. Right? Mr. Teeny. You see a smoking monkey, you laugh your ass off. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't smoke, but I had. I, I know that smokes there for the monkey. Yeah, and I know it's bad for the monkey. I smoke a cigarette. Yeah, yeah, it's bad for the monkey. I never touched for... a drop of alcohol, but I gave a ton to the monkey. Just... <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> um, and believe me, if if acid were an option, yeah. that would have been considered. Um, so we want to bring the monkey in, and then you would take your cell phone and you would call Godot and say, "Where's Arturo?" And they would say, Arturo's in the band room. Uh, the guys have been playing some blues, and Arturo's playing a little harmonica. And I go, okay, can you wrap that up and get Arturo out by the pool? We want the monkey to play drums. <laughs> uh. Hey, Arturo, we're all having a good time here, but now you've got to leave because we think the monkey would be more fun than <laughs> yeah. the little person. Right, did Arturo you, was a buzzkill. Did, did you have to say that Arturo was playing a little harmonica? <laughs> I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you did. Uh, harmonica, they picked up a little guitar. So the whole rest of the five-hour day is just rotating. You know, a monkey wants to go outside. Arturo needs to come in. Yeah. Arturo wants to go to the barbecue, get himself a hamburger. Let's bring the monkey in. It's like, it's like and one then of those the puzzles other thing, with the missing block. Yeah, 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 exactly. everything over. yeah, yeah. It's actually taking the, you know, the boat across the river with the goat, <laughs> the little person, the monkey. And then the... Um, <laughs> Which one do you... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Take that across and the wives can't see each other. Exactly, riddle. And then uh, the other only interesting, besides, and I, I, I kind of slid over this, and I want you all to realize how sexy it is. It is very sexy in public to have an animal who can do anything to other people. <laughs> the idea, I mean, like right now, we were in mixed company, and there were like 30 or 40 people around, and we had a monkey that could just hand job and feel up anybody. <laughs> 
we would be having a better time. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, there's no That's question. All. It's That's just because they're true. reaching. You know, you got this. You know, uh, friends, girlfriends there. You know, friend of mine, this woman I know that's that's really wicked smart, wicked smart, wicked powerful, wicked strong, just great, wonderful, great, terrific. She's out by my pool in a bikini, and a monkey's feeling her up. I am harder than Chinese algebra. <laughs> I mean, it's just boom, bang, boom, done. But then the monkey does this other thing, you know. You start thinking, you can, he understands English, you can talk to him, yeah. you say, get me a soda, you can say all this stuff, you can say, no, don't do this. But then he just does something that's just so cool that you wouldn't think of doing. I mean, even if you were friends with Johnny Knoxville, this wouldn't happen. Someone's putting on suntan lotion, and it's, you know, it's banana citrus suntan lotion, <laughs> and the monkey goes over and just goes, <laughs> and drinks the whole thing. <laughs> he just squirts suntan lotion into his mouth, and then the trainer is trying to rinse banana suntan lotion <laughs> out of a chip's oh, mouth. Wow. And once again, it's a great party. <laughs> wow. But I'm glad I, I you know, that's the uh, that's That the is story. a wonderful story. Wow. And I also love, I love, and then just sort of building off that something you said earlier, that you've never, you've never done any substances no. I, I've been sober for eight years, and I never did drugs, but I just drank a lot. And uh, but but well, that went with the bowling. That went with the bowling, of course. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's a, that's why I go bowling. Yeah. <laughs> but just but but what I love what I love is that it it just hearing you tell these stories and talk about you know and just from knowing what I know about you. Your your decision to not touch substances is is very consistent with what it seems like your mission statement in life, which is, is having real, true uh, experiences. If there had been alcohol involved, we could not have mixed the monkey with the little person. No. Right. It would have been too dangerous. But five big sober men with knives can do science. Yep. <laughs> but also it makes all of your experiences you, I, vivid. They're very vivid. True. They're very vivid. It makes they're them very true. true. The parties I've had, and since I have young children, the parties have changed because of, of course, child services. Of course. Um, <laughs> but I had, uh, I had, uh, I filled up huge pools with cornstarch. And we all know if you're going to do a nerd thing, yeah, everybody sure. knows about cornstarch. That's awesome. And we had naked uh, wrestling in cornstarch with about a uh, hundred of my friends. Wow. And what I found is, you know, if you have friends that are porn stars and I do, it's very hard to get them naked uh, because they're used to being paid for that. But if you have friends that are like nuclear physicists, easy to get them. <laughs> you know, a woman that's a rocket scientist will take off her clothes like that mm -hmm. because she doesn't have to uh, monetize. In other words, the value. it ain't rocket science. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so everybody's wrestling in the cornstarch, which is really cool. And we're all outside, and we're all naked. And there's naked cornstarch wrestling. And there's also a lot of subtext because some people were enjoying the cornstarch wrestling even more than the wrestling. And um, <laughs> But I decided on tap. as the feature event, it was going to be Arturo and I wrestling nude. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and all of a sudden, a figure is popping in your head for how much you'd pay to see me wrestle a little person. $78. No, the, num the number's higher than what I would have thought. Uh, $78? $150. Whoa. $150. How much are you going to pay me to watch it? <laughs> Don't you play that game. You know the truth. You know the truth. Don't play that. Oh, I don't want to see a guy naked. No, no, you I'd love to see a guy naked, but it wouldn't, the cherry on the top is getting money for it. <laughs> But uh, 100, 155, including uh, um, ticket masterpiece. Okay, yeah. so we, we we're, we're 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 about we're about four hundred bucks here. We can just, okay. we can just yeah. do it like that. Yep. Uh, but this is all free for my friends, 
And I wrestled Arturo. We were having a great time because we acted like we acted like, uh, although no one fell for it, we acted like it was just getting up in a grudge match. Mm-hmm. You know, I went up there to say something to my friends, and Arturo heckled me a little bit, and I was like, "You little bastard!" And we, you know, started screaming and trash talking, and then we jump in the pool, and the crowd goes crazy. <laughs> but what happened was Arturo's arms weren't uh, long enough to hold his face out of the cornstarch. Oh, no. I didn't know this when we jumped in. So we are jumping around, rolling around nude in cornstarch. And I decide it'll be funny if I just push him down into the cornstarch. So I push him down to the cornstarch, and I declare victory. Now, what I don't know is he can't pull himself out of the cornstarch. Oh, shit. And he can't push his arms down to push off the bottom, and he also can't breathe. So um, he's down there for just a little bit too long. And then I go, and I'm in the position of, you know. <laughs> just like a little chicken to tender. pull a little person out of uh. cornstarch who can't breathe. <laughs> what, a, what a rough go Arturo is at <laughs> yeah. parties. Well, that's just two of them. The, <laughs> the one where I hired a guy to nail his cock to a board and pull a topless stripper across the stage, Arturo just enjoyed that. He was just a spectator. And Extreme Elvis uh, pissing on the crowd. Arturo had the catbird seat. He didn't have urine on him. He had a fine time. Right, so some good, of the yeah. parties good. have Arturo's gone very well unscathed. for Arturo. Yeah. But when I pulled him out, what really broke my heart is that Arturo said to me, you know, you saved my life. I couldn't have... And I said, well, yes, but after I'd pushed you... <laughs> after I'd murdered starch, you. And held you down. But he was uh, he was very grateful that I didn't just let him. Now, I want to see what that forensics report from the police officer would have been. Yeah. You know, Penja, we always knew. We always knew there was something not quite right about Penn. Yeah. And sure enough, he drowned a naked little person in cornstarch in his backyard while his sick friends cheered. I yeah. can explain. Uh, yeah. Actually, I guess I can't. This is pretty much exactly what happened. Famous last words. Also, I can explain. The many ways that I've gotten in trouble, I've always wondered how my friends would react. Like, I have my garage has my bedroom right mm-hmm. above it. And um, I had... So you um, could be like the Fonz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I had a Bronco. I had a Bronco uh, uh, automobile mm-hmm. that was painted pink and said pink death on the side of it. And my plate <laughs> said atheist. And um, I pulled in, uh, I was on the phone. Uh, talking to somebody. And I guess it was an interesting conversation because I got out of the car and continued the conversation and left the car oh, running. Oh, garage. Shit. Then I closed the garage door. Oh, boy. And I went upstairs, finished my conversation, and went to bed. <laughs> so I had a full tank Bronco running in my garage all night. And I woke up at like 5 in the morning coughing. <clears throat> And my nose filled up and unable to breathe. And I said to myself, boy, the uh, bedroom sure seems smoky. (laughs) And I went out and I pissed. And I took a drink of water and blew my nose, which was black and sooty. 
and then went back to bed. Because oh, that's God. the kind of guy I am. <laughs> well, I guess I'm just getting a cold or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. never slept better. <laughs> and I slept very soundly and then woke up groggy and sick and feeling awful. I went, oh, I'm wow. coming out with the flu. This is, this is horrible. And I kind of, uh, and I get out and I open the door to outside. And all of a sudden, I'm feeling a lot better. And there's smoke pouring out of my bedroom. And I go, man, this is weird. So I go, wait a minute. That smells like exhaust. And I go downstairs, and the door to the garage is so hot I can't touch it. And I have to get towels. When I open the door, all this smoke comes out. And I have to get towels to touch the car to be able to reach in and turn it off. It's been going Jesus. for, you know, uh, whatever it was. Literally pink death. Ten hours. Yeah. And I'm coughing and miserable. But that's not the important part of the story. None of that matters. What matters is... My friends, if that had happened, I'd stayed in bed another few hours. Although I've been told that the ventilation was good enough that I would never die. But let's just say I could have died in that situation. Then we have my friends talking. And there would be two schools of thought on this. One, Penn was suicidal. Mm -hmm. We didn't know it. And decided to kill himself by going to bed with the exhaust in. The other is... Penn loved life, but was so stupid. <laughs> he went to bed with Which his one would you rather have people remember? And I've talked to friends of mine, and I said, which camp would you be in? And most of them have said, well, we've never seen you that depressed, but we have seen you stupid. <laughs> so I wonder, you know, if you were doing the newscast, and one of the things pops up, and it says, you know, you do a little thing, Penn Gillette found dead in his house. The car was running, and he died of carbon dioxide poisoning. And then you're going to have a little discussion here. Where do you go? Where do you go with it? I uh, can't believe he was that bummed out. <laughs> you go with the bummed out. Yeah. Um, atheist killed by devil-possessed car. <laughs> <laughs> you going with stupid? I'm going with accident. Okay. I, no, I'm, I'm, going with, I'm going with maximum overdrive or Christine. There we go. The car. <laughs> I was going to say, so everyone's going to be like, he said he didn't believe in it. Now, you Lord. Know you know why? Because if you really wanted to kill yourself, you would have been in the car in the garage. No, not, except it's so much I, more comfortable, comfortable in bed. In bed. Exactly. I guess that's true. <laughs> exactly. You wanted to be surrounded yeah. by. I don't want to kill myself. Believe me. I want to die in a hammock. I just want to die in a hammock. Is that it? <laughs> he, he died the way he, he wanted to live. <laughs> in his bed. <laughs> well, we're almost we're pretty much at the end of our hour with you, but there's a couple things that I want to cover before okay. we release you into the wild. Number one, I didn't even get to talk to you about juggling and in college. Are I you was, a juggler? I yes, but I never. I'm. Why I'm no are we good passing anymore. cubs? We I don't know. I can do that. I was taught to juggle by Peter Scolari. Oh sure. Who yeah. uh, I know Peter. When I was in college, yeah. I worked at a country club he belonged to, and he yeah. got me into juggling. And and what put me off juggling was that I could never maintain five. I could oh. always get the first little flourish, and yeah. then and then it just went away. Well, five is hard. Five is hard. And the other thing that's bothersome now is that because of the internet, oh. jugglers have gotten so much better. Yeah. Uh, and that's something, you know, unintended consequences. I can't believe that because of the internet, the, and not because they learn how to do it, but because they know it's possible. Right. You've got 13-year-olds passing, you know, 12 clubs. Right. You know, uh, seven uh, balls. Yeah, just I mean, if you look at uh, Jason Garfield and the, uh, you know, the uh, his world juggling championships and stuff, mm -hmm. you've now got, uh, I was a very good juggler in the 70s, and now even at my peak, I wouldn't even be considered a piker for amateurs. I, I, I went to juggling conventions when I was in, in college, and, and, and one guy that I was always, and, and this is going to be a very obvious statement if you're a juggler, but if anyone listening can find Michael Motion videos, 
M-O-S-C-H-E-N. But you know about Michael Motion. What? Do you know who taught him to juggle? No. Me. What? Do you know where Michael Motion lived? No. Next to Michael Collins. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's better than that. I grew up at 48 Place Terrace, Greenfield, Massachusetts, 01301. That's where I grew up. Greenfield, Massachusetts, 48 Place Terrace. Mike Motion grew up at 38 Place Terrace, oh Greenfield, Massachusetts, 01301. This is amazing. So, I grew up in Lowell. You, <laughs> Shut the fuck Lowell? up. We're not talking. Yeah. You're from Lowell? Yeah, from Lowell. Yeah, Kerouac. All right, keep talking again. Kerouac. Kerouac is good. You know, you know, you, you know Greenfield. Well, I, know. I know Greenfield. Yeah, you know, you know where Greenfield, Greenfield is. Yeah, I know yeah. Lowell. Well, Lowell and Greenfield, we're the same guy. We, we yeah. know the same, all the same stuff. Oh, We've seen crack. Uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so uh, uh, when I was uh, twelve years old, I desperately wanted to be in show business. Had never met anybody in show business. Didn't think it was possible. So one of the things I did was I learned to juggle and call in motion. Was Mike Motion's older brother by year and I got a book by Ken Benj from the library on how to juggle wow. and we learned to juggle uh, with no help you know just from a book learned to do a shower before we did a cascade but we had lots of time to practice we were in Greenfield Massachusetts and then the week after we started Mike Motion joined in and Mike Motion and I started juggling more and more and more and more and all through high school our group the toss-ups was call in motion, Mike Motion, and Penn Gillette. And our opening joke was, hi, we're the toss-ups. We used to be called the throw-ups, but we didn't get as much work. And um, we, would, we would juggle and pass. And then uh, I got out of uh, high school, got out of high school, did not graduate, but plea bargain, got out. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, I went to Ringling Brothers Barnum Bear, the greatest show on earth, Clown College. Then I got out in that and moved to New York and teamed up with Mike Motion, and we did a two-person juggling act. Uh, we were the first to pass nine clubs. Holy we shit. Were, we were really uh, stupid good, and then we got a job at Great Adventure. Uh, <laughs> it all comes back around! Where Mike Motion was standing watching the 300 game oh be ruined God. by no his juggling fucking party. Way. Wow. No fucking way! But it goes further than that. This is like an Arrested Development episode. This saw Arturo and the Chimpanzee show up. <laughs> well, they, then I, it turned out that I met Teller, you know, and I was talking to Teller, and I wanted to team up with Teller, but we still had this big place in Jersey. So Mike Motion lived in a house with me and Teller. Oh and my he would God. be practicing all the time, working on his solo act while I was working with Teller. And we'd still pass clubs all the time. And I went to Canal Street in New York City, and I was looking for anything that could put together a routine. Yeah. I wanted to do some juggling in the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society. I was already doing two juggling things, doing a ball act and a knife act. I wanted one more thing. So I went to Canal Street, and they had these, um, these clear crystal balls. Yes. Well, let me finish. A little bigger than softballs. So excited. And I bought these crystal balls. I bought five of them. And I brought them back to our house. And I sat with Teller and I sat by myself and I juggled these three, four, five balls in every combination I could, trying to find, because the crystal balls were beautiful. And they didn't look unbreakable. They looked powerful and nice. So I worked and worked and worked. And I was looking in the mirror and I was talking to Teller. I could not find a bit to go with those crystal balls. So they were there on the floor, these acrylic crystal balls. Oh my God. And Mike Motion comes to me and says, 
because we would always go into the Museum of Television History, which you don't you know you needed before the internet, and watch these uh, kinescopes wow. of variety acts. So Michael had watched this person that did some one ball manipulation. So Michael said to me, I'm thinking about monkey with one ball. And I said, oh, that's good juggling because it's one less than you have hands. That'll kill. <laughs> and um, they'll be able to focus on it. And Michael came to me and said, you know, could, could I take those crystal acrylic balls you bought and see if I can do a routine with those? Oh and I said, God. I got nothing, man. Go ahead. And then eight months later, Michael came to us with uh, his uh, one ball juggling routine with the crystal balls that then went up to two and what is now called contact juggling, but at that time was called Mike Motion's fucking act because <laughs> everybody stole it. And Mike, uh, Mike Motion went on to become uh, genius uh, MacArthur Grant juggler, and I went on to be in Penn & Teller. But from the time we were five years old, we were best friends. I mean, um, Mike Motion, Colin Motion, and Penn Gillette were the three Motion brothers. You know, We all went everywhere together. So you've heard of them. <laughs> and yes, I was the first one to see his tri triangle routine. Oh my god! I was the first one to see the sticks thing. Did the he get to that, meet David Bowie in Labyrinth? I did. I, he, he got to be his his, his hands. He was the hands. Yeah, yeah. He's the hands. For he him. and he also did the thing. He also did this thing in like a. I don't know what it was called, but it looked like a, like if you sectioned out the, a pipe, a big pipe, yeah, and, he yeah, got, yeah. and he would take balls and just in the middle of it, just bounce balls all around this yeah, circle. Yeah. But anyway, oh, see, yeah. I'm so sorry that I didn't know that. That is that your that connection is amazing. And if, I bow to you. If Mike Motion ever sits in this seat, and you ask him that question, Mike Motion will say. Colin and I learned to juggle. Then a week later, we brought panic. <laughs> <laughs> he will also tell you, Penn and I went to Canal Street together, uh -huh. and we bought the balls and brought them back. We were both working on routines simultaneously, and Penn couldn't come up with anything, and I came up with something that changed juggling in the 20th century. Yes. Pretty much complete agreement. It has, at its core, Penn failed, Mike succeeded. <laughs> but there are small details that are slightly different. Well, um... You have. Uh, let's just pr quickly plug the stuff that you have coming sure. out. You have your. You have your book that's out. The book of five New York weeks Times, the New York list. Times bestseller list. God no signs. You may already be an atheist and other magical tales. And the little person and the uh, and the monkey are not in there. But the extreme Elvis, the whole atheist baptism with a urinating fat Elvis and me, Ron Jeremy, and extreme Elvis lined up because extreme Elvis has one of the smallest penises in the world. And of course, Ron Jeremy, we all know. And I stood between them and we took a picture which I like to call Trojans. We fit all men. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and like, I like also a, like a seal pipe. We have we have a uh, we have a show the Discovery Show, yeah. On the Disco Channel, yep. which I'm trying to call Disco Channel. <laughs> I support this. Uh, the Discovery Channel, <laughs> right after uh, everybody's favorites, the Mythbusters, mm -hmm. who are opening for us. Yep. And yeah. uh, on Wednesday night at uh, 9 o'clock, you can watch the Mythbusters on, uh, on uh, the Disco Channel. And at 10 o'clock, you can watch Penn and Teller Tell a Lie, which is the same first three words as Penn and Teller Bullshit. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we will give you seven... <laughs> unbelievable science stories and 
one of them is a big obese lie. And you watch at home with your little apps and your computers and try to see if you can vote for when Penn and Teller are lying and when we're telling you the truth about your universe. Well, I appreciate that. And I, and, and, and I wish you the best of luck with the show and the book. And also just to tell you that um, – that you guys were very influential to me as a comic in the 80s. I mean, I did have an appreciation of illusion and magic, but I was much more of a comedy nerd. Mm-hmm. And, and and guys like you, and then also when I was growing up, I loved Amazing Jonathan. Like, oh, sure. like just watching the, the guys who were truly able to pull comedy in a way that spoke to me and and you know revealed this 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 world to me so i i thank you well thank you so much and you know all this has really taught me is that i really really should get together another party and uh, y'all should be yes. invited. I think that's... that's we'll be yeah. Mike Collins out I there. will drive Holy out there shit. for that. <laughs> yeah. I'll have right. for that. Well, uh, thank you so much, P- Pendulette. Uh, uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. And uh, thanks for thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> that's the end. <laughs> the end of the show. Oh. But wait, it's not the end of the show. As sort of promised, a song poem. I tracked one down and... Song poems are amazing. I don't know how this skated under my radar for so long, but clearly I've been an idiot uh, who was asleep and has only just woken up to life thanks to song poems. So uh, here we go. This one is by... Oh, wait, should I do this like radio style? Hey, it's uh, Chris Hardwick on KNRD. ISP. And this song is by Norman Burns. And it's called Blue Adams. Now I'm doing a funny voice, but I actually really like this song a lot. Song poem time. Song poems. Song poems. S poems. Song peas. S peas. S peas? Yes, please. I don't know what to do I loved you truly You thought I didn't care Now all I see Is blue atoms everywhere
Connected with GoToMyPC, the missing link that turns your iPad into your computer. Download the free app and visit GoToMyPC.com for your free 30-day trial and enter the promo code NERDIST. I have missed these Friday night dinners. Mm. Hey, welcome to Harvey Graw! At these family dinners... Delicious, everyone! Dysfunction is served. Wow. I can't have you all messing things up for my entire adult life. Oh, I'm sorry. Do we embarrass you? Jump, jump, jump! It's already better than I dared to dream. They're extra. Let the wild rumpus start! And they're embarrassing. We know how hard it is to move on from the first girl that you ever slept with. Not the first girl who I ever slept with. Yeah, 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 right. You're a regular lady killer. I thought you said it was going to be boring here tonight. No! I really hope it would be. But they couldn't love each other more. Surprise! To mom and dad being totally normal. Wow. So... Dinner next Friday, everyone? Wouldn't miss for the world. Dinner with the Parents, Season 1. Stream free, only on Freebie.